Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who walked 8 miles to go to school, 10 miles to earn a living, and 18 miles to learn to achieve her dreams. And then she flew. The end. Let's talk about Bessie Coleman. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1921, Albert Einstein was lecturing in New York on his new theory of relativity. Shuffle Along, the first all-black musical, opened in New York. Adolf Hitler becomes leader of the National Soviet German Workers' Party. Amelia Earhart buys her first plane, the Canary, and has only been flying for eight months. Josephine Baker was a chorus girl in Philadelphia. And on June 15, 1921, aviatrix Bessie Coleman becomes the first African-American woman to earn her pilot's license. Bessie Coleman was born on January 26, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas. She was the 10th of 13 children of George and Susan Coleman, or the 6th of the 9 surviving children, which tells all the tale you probably need to know. George was three-quarters American Indian, and the rest was African American. Papa was probably born a free man, as a matter of fact, but Mama was probably born a slave, but definitely at least the child of slaves. She was from Georgia. So, there's the family makeup. They moved when Bessie was two to the prospering cotton town of, let's take a breath, (gasps) Waxahachie, Texas. The oldest three siblings, one was 17 years older. They'd gone out into the world, so it was Papa, Mama, brothers Ozzie and John, and little Bessie at the time. And they all lived in a on a quarter acre plot that he purchased for about $25. And he built a three-room shotgun style house, which is still very common in the South. It's one room after another. You could shoot a shotgun straight through and not hit any balls. The house filled back up quickly, though, in the next four years. Three more sisters. And as little as she was, you know, four, five, six, Bessie was mostly responsible for watching the little sisters. Mm-hmm. And the garden was her special care. <laughs> So, Sisters in Garden, that was Bessie's little tiny childhood life. At age six, she was able to go to school. She had to walk. This sounds like the stuff of legend. I had to walk four miles, but she did. She walked four miles to an all-black school where she was an excellent student. You know, our school will not even release children without a parent present. (laughs) And I think I walked back from kindergarten. I mean, it was a quarter mile, but I walked back from kindergarten. I was rural. You had to take a bus, but yeah. I know, send your little six-year-old down the street. Four miles there and four miles back. That's, woof. Well, the school focused on the three R's, only one of which starts with R, by the way. Reading, writing, arithmetic. But there were no textbooks in this separate but equal school. There were hardly any writing tools, certainly not enough to go around. Mm -hmm. But she still eagerly kind of took hold of any information that she could. I thought it was very interesting that she excelled at mathematics, which would come in handy a little bit later for her. Yeah, because the big unwelcome interruption every year, every year year was the cotton harvest. Every July or maybe August, depending Mm -hmm. on the weather, it was all hands on deck. I mean, literally, school was closed through December. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like a month. This is one of the largest cotton-producing counties in the country. So this is a big harvest. So all families were out in the field picking cotton. Well, Bessie hated it. Who would like it? Nobody. Um, And she evaded as much as she could, but she was the one 
in the family that was good at figures, and she kept an eyeball on the man mm-hmm. that was weighing. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of her nieces had said in a in a quote that she was willing to put her foot on the scale if the guy wasn't looking. <laughs> She's up there looking at the book. Yeah. But she'll like, dun, dun, dun. She'd put her toe. Smile. She's adorable. Yeah, she I'm was sure very she got, got away with a lot because of her, you know, her adorableness. So other than that big, fat, four-month downside, life at this point was pretty serene. I mean, it was definitely predictable. You know, schools, chores, playtime. Sounds good to me. But everything changed. Everything changed. When she was nine years old, Papa left the family. Not just left, but race relations could not have been worse. I mean, there were over a hundred lynchings that year. And if you want to know more about the climate, then um, I suggest you listen to our Ida Wells episode. Absolutely. Because this at this time, Ida was about 20 years old and she had really begun her anti-lynching campaign about the year that, that Bessie was born. So she's in full swing at this point. So it's episode 25 and it would be very instructive to know what was going on in the South right here. Right. But um, George, being three-quarters American Indian, thought if the family moved to Oklahoma, which was the Indian Territory, that they would be treated a little bit more equal. But Mama flatly refused to go. I'm not entirely sure why, but she didn't have any ties to Waxahachie except for maybe her church family, but... I read this one quote from her, and obviously, I mean, there's no way that anybody could have written it down what she said, but she basically said, you can go if you want, but I am neither a pioneer nor a squaw. Ow! So she probably thought, "There's, yeah, you will be treated as an equal, but your family won't. I'm just guessing. I Well, maybe it was the case of the devil you know, but Papa, peace outed. He's gone. Yeah, and shortly afterward, both brothers, 15 and 19, kind of went their separate ways to go out in the world and earn their livings, too. Both of them did fine. So he didn't destroy everybody. But here's Mama. No family in town. Four little girls. Under the age of 10. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that the fear is just overwhelming right now. But, you know... (laughs) She's been scrapping her whole life. You know, survival is her thing. So with great resourcefulness or luck or honestly maybe kindness in the community, I don't know, she found work immediately as a housekeeper and cook for a white couple named Mr. and Mrs. Elwyn Jones, who I have to say of all the employers she could have gotten, I mean, Mrs. Jones would tell Mama, remember to bake extra bread so you have enough to take home. Mm -hmm. She would send home meat and butter to Mm -hmm. the little girls. Mrs. Jones gave Mama lots of clothes. We're not talking raggedy clothes. Right. But newish clothes that her children had worn Mm -hmm. and were the right size for Mama's children. She was a nice lady. Yeah, they did sound very nice. But with Mom at work all day, Bessie was really in charge of the home front. So she, her life was really school and then home. Well, and sometimes just home, because a lot of times there was a lot more to do, than, and she got kept back from school, which has got to be a bummer. No electricity, no running water. You're nine years old. You're doing all the washing and the cooking and the cleaning. Seven-year-old Eloise helped mm-hmm. a little, and I'm here to tell you, seven-year-old help, quote, help is not what it could be, but maybe at the time, Eloise was a lot more focused. Well, and Bessie was doing it at seven, so why couldn't Eloise? That's true. But Nihilus and Georgia were just too little. I love the names. 
So Bessie was still out of school and pretty much all her childhood from then on, honestly. Um, no more playtime. But my mom made sure she did the best she could by all of them, and she got books from a wagon library that went past the house a couple times a year. It was um, a mule-drawn wagon with this kooky little house mm-hmm. on top with doors and just crates of books in it. I imagine, like, in The Wizard of Oz in the movie, the professors. The, oh, yeah, the peddler's yeah, cart. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I imagine is the... So I think it's key that mom couldn't really read, but she was so pushing the education on her kids. I think that was that was good. And they read about Booker T. Washington, Mm -hmm. Harriet Tubman, and then they read Uncle Tom's Cabin as a cautionary tale of how not to behave. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? She raised her daughters with the same manners that she observed in the White House where she worked. So they ate at a table with a tablecloth. Mm We spoke softly. Mm-hmm. We were ladies. Yep. She picked up stuff at work and brought it home and taught her children. Yep. Nice little family group. Very religious upbringing. Very. So Bessie went through all grades, one through eight, at the school, and that was pretty much all that was on offer. Yeah, there's nothing else for her to do at that point. Although, both her and her mom wanted her to go to college. So for five years, she worked, Bessie did, as a laundress for the white families on the other side of town to earn less than $10 a month. She worked hard. You know, she'd go around and collect the laundry and bring it back to her house, wash it, iron it, and and bring it back. Five miles there, mm-hmm. five miles back to the back doors of West Waxahachie. Literally across the tracks. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a very hard way to earn a living, but at last she had enough money and set off for Langston, Oklahoma, to enter the Colored Agricultural and Normal University. Normal, in this case, of course, meaning a teacher academy. The school is now Langston University. Go Lions! (laughs) In Oklahoma. Well, Bessie didn't meet the entrance requirements, but here's the thing. A lot of students didn't because most teachers in black schools at the time had only a sixth grade education themselves. So, the university... Practical to the last, ran this sidelong remedial academy to kind of get people up to scratch. And Bessie, at 18 years old, was placed into the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. But as a preparatory sir, kind of like in the movie Rudy, where Rudy didn't get in to Notre Dame, he got into the school that prepares you for Notre Dame. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, I have never watched Rudy. I don't know what I have boys who like sports in my house. Oh. <laughs> well, after all that, after all that hard work, boiling and scrubbing and starching and hanging and ironing and folding and walking, after all that, her money ran out after one semester. One semester. Seriously. And she had to go back to Waxahachie and resume her work as a laundress. Ugh. And many uh, in her situation may have just... You know, gotten married. What are you gonna do? You worked five years for the one semester, but uh-huh. but and you only got a sixth grade education. You didn't even get into the college. You know. So um, so I have written down here. Miss Thing is tenacious B. Oh, nice. Because for five more years, she rolled out that laundry again. So here she is at 23, and her brother, who they called Bud, that wasn't his real name, Walter. His name is Walter. Bud was a Pullman porter in Chicago. That was a good job. And Chicago was where opportunity was knocking. Why don't you come on up here and try your luck? And Bessie took him up on that. Siblings are really good way stations, I think. Yeah, and this was a a really good, safe place for her to go because it was a large, it was a city, a large community, lots of opportunities. She was going to be living with Bud and her brother John and their wives. I mean, okay, they live in a three-room apartment, 
but it's in Chicago, and she can get farther than being a laundress in Waxahachie. So she looked around, and oh, sure enough, she can get a job as a laundress, like Snappity. No, yeah, no. she did not come all this way. Or polishing trains for $3 a day, which is more than she made cleaning clothes. But, uh, so, so she's like, nah. So she learned how to do manicures, which is very smart, because you didn't have so much training. Mm -hmm. It's a faster start to earn money. And instead of going to a beauty parlor full of women, another smart thing, she found work at a barber shop. Now, did we mention that Bessie Coleman was very pretty and very presentable mm -hmm. and very sassy in a ladylike way. Mama was not raising coarse women. No. Yeah. Charming. Charming. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So ultimately, she ended up at Duncan's Barbershop on East 36th Street. This barbershop was full of rich and powerful men, or at least fashionable men. It was just off what was called the stroll. It was a very highly visible position. Yes. And she uh, was in the window. She was in the window. It was 12 blocks of State Street between 27th and 39th, and it was where the action was. Jazz clubs, restaurants, wheeler dealers, even just people watching. It was the premier place for the African-American citizens of Chicago, and in fact stayed that way until the Savoy Ballroom opened. <laughs> You know, ten years later, it was the place. During this time, she met a man named Claude Glenn, who was 14 years older than her, and they secretly married. I didn't find a whole lot of references to this marriage. They never lived together, although she was able to move out of her brother's apartment and get a place of her own, but... Nobody understood it. Yeah. They, even her nieces and nephews referred to, like, I vaguely remember a guy named Uncle Claude and... Mm, I don't know. Like, nobody... It was nothing. He was nothing. <laughs> like, nobody really understood that situation. Yeah. Let's get married and not live together and... Okay. Hey, but it, obviously it worked for both of them. They had the reason. Yeah, we so, don't know. You go for it. And that is the only place he will appear in this entire That's story. That's it. Okay, so tips were pretty good. She got to meet a lot of the movers and shakers. She learned a lot and learned to read The Defender, which is the premier oh, black newspaper, newspaper in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, also, we mentioned Robert Abbott, the publisher in the Ida Wells podcast. Yes, and he plays a key role in this particular story, too. Again, an intersection with episode 25, The Defender was in the business of exposing lynchings and bad treatment in the South and also promoted African-American culture and achievement. It was a fiery paper. It was an inspiring paper. And it was one of her favorite things to do in the morning is to read that paper before she started work. So that kind of thing started to tick, tick, tick mm -hmm. in her brain mm -hmm. Along with all the conversations she heard, you know how men talk when they're all together. And I think if you're still enough, people forget that you're in the room, kind of. Yep, she just kept polishing their nails, getting them nice and shiny. And just tears them up. Ears open. So, her brothers came back safely from World War One. although it is telling that she was more afraid that the white soldiers would hurt them than the enemy soldiers. Mm -hmm. But they came back safely, and did they have news? French women were flying airplanes. Now, at this point, her brother John is working for Al Capone as a cook. And apparently Al Capone was very supportive of the black community in a very giving way, which I, which surprised me. I knew very little about him other than guns and stuff. But he, so John's got kind of some swag going on because of his position. And he's like, hey, Bessie, let me tell you about those French women. <laughs> They have careers over there. Well, this is 1919. To say that airplanes are an infant industry is saying something. I mean, 
This is the year Amelia Earhart took her first 10-minute plane ride this year. Right. Even the Defender was covering the French pilots, even though none of them were black ladies at all. But Baroness Raymond de la Roche, Marie Marvin, who was called Le Fiancé du Danger. Yeah. Ooh. Hélène Dutroux, the Girl Hawk. Actually, she was Belgian, but they yeah. called her French, but yeah. whatever. Close enough. It sounded French. Hélène Dutroux. <laughs> but Bessie was inspired. Yes, I have found my calling. Forget you, John, with your taunting. I'm in it. Okay, I found it. I'm doing it. And she kept a little toy airplane at her station for a while, but the trouble was she could not find anyone to help her learn to fly. Uh, race was the number one problem, I do believe. And but gender was the secondary problem. She could not get a single flight school to even look at her. They They all rejected her flat out. So she did struggle quite a bit to remain positive, but you know, someone that walked eight miles every day to school and ten miles to a job is not going to be defeated easily. No. So who would know? Who would know what I'm supposed to do? So she went to go see Robert Abbott, again, the the owner of the Chicago Defender, and he saw a great opportunity, not only for Bessie, but for himself. If the Defender could help kind of sponsor her and give her some publicity, it would not only help Bessie out, it would not only help the black community out, but it would help the Defender out, because this is what they did. They promoted people like this. So she was smart in going to him. He suggests she go to France. So this just amazes me. Let's go back to Josephine Baker. Episode 34 and 35. (laughs) Let's just go learn French and go to France. But he may as well have said, hey, let's learn on the moon. But, you know, he was serious. Save X number of dollars, Bessie, and learn French, and I will help you. Okay, so scrimping and saving alone is not going to do it. She switched careers or added. I'm not sure if she quit the manicuring, but she also... Moved to work in a chili restaurant to make some more money. Chili? Chili. Restaurant. Okay, I learned so much about chili <laughs> in this podcast. There is the coolest website about the history of chili in America, and your mind will be blown. What'scookingamerica.net. 1850 is the official, quote, okay. beginning of chili in America, and I always thought that Mexican food would be tacos that came in. But you know what? Mexico doesn't even claim chili. It's San Antonio. Like, to Mexico, this is like chop suey is to the the Chinese cuisine. It's like, nah, we have nothing to do with that. (laughs) Well, it was technically part of Mexico. At the time, it was like the tippy, tippy, tippy top with too many other influences. Okay, here we go with the ubiquitous... Chicago World's Fair reference. <laughs> the year after Bessie was born, there was a chili booth at the Columbian Exposition, and that is where chili freaking went viral in America. Every city had its chili parlor. The crackers were free. The chili was cheap. And I read a quote that said that chili saved more people from starving in America than the Red Cross during wow. the Depression. I had it's no a idea. balanced meal. There's proteins, there's vegetables, and there's carbohydrates in there. I had no, I was like, a what parlor? It just, I didn't even understand. So go to that website. It's amazing. We'll link you up in the show notes. So the wages were considerably better, but prestige was not better at all. But she did not care. She was able to save money and took some French lessons on Michigan Avenue. And soon, she was on her way. She applied for a passport. She changed her age from 28 to 24. She swore she had never been married. 
Hmm. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Josephine Baker. It must have been a thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, the description of her on her passport is this. Five feet, three and a half inches tall, high forehead, brown skin, brown eyes, sharp nose, medium mouth, round chin, and brown hair. Okay, that's what she looked like. But then they put a photograph on. So what was that description for? I don't know. Interesting. But she, it's a very beautiful picture. She was very photogenic. So, um, so on November 28th, 1920, this thing got on a boat. Every book I see says it's the Imperator. But the thing is, that had been renamed the year before. Oh. Uh, after some kind of Viking warrior princess named Berengaria. But whatever, it doesn't matter. The thing that I think is funny is it was captained by Captain Rostrum of the Carpathia, who had saved all of the victims of the Titanic that Yay. were saved. So this story is intersecting in a lot of our previous episodes. Worlds collide. It's time for a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what happened when Bessie went to France. And we're back. When we left Bessie, she was on the Berengaria, headed for her future. Uh, five days later, she docked in France. And it was here that Gaston and René Coudron agreed to teach her at their school. It was the second flight school that she contacted. Second. She had been turned down from all of them in Chicago, and then the second one when she gets to France. And it was more like, I have an opening, and not like, you... And the first school just didn't, you know, it's like, sorry, we're full. But, you know, thank you for asking. It wasn't the same at all. And she's actually, since this is a companion episode to Amelia Earhart, they actually started learning to fly about the same within a couple months of each other. So, again, here's the theme. She had to walk nine miles there and nine miles back. So, if nothing else, she is physically fit. So a French mile. <laughs> More scenic. There's Eating the baguette. <laughs> Stop for wine halfway there. It's burned off by the time you arrive. There <laughs> is a marathon in France where everybody wears costumes. Yeah. And the symphony plays at one of the stops, and oh. the wineries sponsor it. And so men dressed as babies in diapers or in tutus are running by. This is a marathon. Mm-hmm. And they drink wine at all the stops instead of Gatorade we got to provide a link to that. Right. We joke about drinking wine at the rest stops, but... I'm like, really? So, uh, so, it was lonesome, but she flew. By God, she flew in tiny little planes made of wire and wood and cardboard where the cloth wings notoriously would peel off in flight. I mean, you guys... If you can survive the training, you can fly a plane. God. <laughs> People with cojones, man. I'm telling you what. On June 15th, 1921... Sure enough, Bessie Coleman was the first black woman to receive her international pilot's license. Now, in the United States, it wasn't required that you needed to have a pilot's license, as we talked about in Amelia (laughs) Earhart. So she she gets her license a full two years before Amelia gets hers. But the first thing Bessie Coleman did is go to Paris and buy herself a fancy leather coat. (laughs) Walk the talk, girl. But I don't know if she slept in it like Amelia, because I don't think Bessie Coleman cared if it looked old. Yeah, I think Bessie probably wanted more, based on the pictures, more pristine. And she had later on a custom-made... 
flight outfit, which is really quite darling. So a few months later, she returns to the United States. Triumphant. She, oh, yeah, she's met by a throng of reporters. And not just the black newspapers either. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was everybody. Um, this is where she kind of plays a little bit of the resemblance again to Miss Baker. And she starts to embellish her tales of her plans. Planes that she claims are coming and are being built for her. She also claims that she flew missions. That she flew missions with a Red Cross during the war. Bessie had to have something. So, I don't know. During the war, she was polishing people's nails in Chicago. Yes. But, um, you know, this isn't even embroidery. This is like painting over <laughs> completely. But There's no um, internet. Who's going to check her? During her time with the press, she also talks about her plans, which I believe are legitimate, to inspire African Americans to take up aviation. So New York is kind of digging her. She's beautiful. She's charming. I mean, air travel at this point is so exciting to everyone. So while she was in New York, she was treated very well, and she was brought to a performance of Shuffle Along, which was the first all-black musical on Broadway. Now, she's back in the States. There's really no jobs in aviation for African-American pilots. None at all, except for barnstorming and aviation shows. But she doesn't have a plane. And she doesn't really know a lot of stunts yet. So she took a quick sojourn back to France to let Gaston Coudron teach her how to do some stunts, because that's where the money is. And when she came back to start flying such shows, Brave Bess was a hit. Her whole act was very patriotic. She would get to the plane, borrowed plane, because, again, she didn't own her own plane. She would kneel down on the ground and pray before the plane. The Star-Spangled Banner would play. She would be honoring veterans or regiments from the war. She would take off, and everyone is screaming. She's flying. She would come back down after a couple stunts, and they weren't actually stunts as much as an illusion of stunts, and they were things a lot of times pilots learn just in training, like what to do if your engine stalls out is part of the training, but it's if you're watching it, looks like the engine stalled. Oh, my goodness. The spirals that the, the planes did were actually maneuvers that they did during the war to avoid being hit. But that's something that they learned in training. But to a spectator on the ground, it looks so dramatic. Sometimes she'd come back down and she'd pick up someone else and bring him back up and he would parachute out. Then she started parachuting out. So it was kind of, it was that was her show. That was her stick. And that Brought people in like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> people would scream her name. Like, they couldn't, they couldn't stand their lives before this moment. <laughs> Justin Bieber! Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you're not lying. No. Um, the Defender newspaper dubbed her Queen Bess and the crowds, man, the crowds were unbelievable. But if the black population of a city was not allowed to buy tickets, which often was tried, Bess wouldn't fly. Nope. She's like, well, then take your publicity and give those refunds, which sounds a lot like Josephine Baker using her power for the powers of good. She was very, very vocal about equality. At one point, a film company wanted to make a movie of her life, and she signed a contract. She showed up to to star in this movie. They tried to put her in costumes and show her as a poor, ignorant Ragamuffin. Ragamuffin. And she wanted no part of that. First off, she wasn't ignorant at all. Secondly, she was fairly well-dressed when she was a young girl because of the hand-me-downs from mm-hmm. the family that her mom... It was just all too much for her, and she did not want to perpetuate that stereotype. And she bailed, and she literally said, no Uncle Tom stuff for me. Mm-hmm. 
I'm gone. But the thing is, here's the slightly bad part about that is that she offended some pretty powerful dudes that probably could have helped her out and eased her financial burdens a little, but she stood on her principles and you've got to honor her for that. So, so her greatest desire, the deepest desire of her heart was to open her own flying school. Um, she didn't have to keep it in her heart, although the publicity about it, embroidery or whitewashing as it was, was always out there. Um, it was really kind of hard to make money her way, especially as she had to either rent or, if she was lucky, borrow a plane to work in. So it's kind of hard to get ahead when you have to spend outlay to just even show up. Right. And she was getting paid for her performances, and she would take passengers up after the for $5 a person. I mean, that's not chump change. But, again, like you said, her living expenses were – she has to get to these places. She has to get the planes, you know. So – at 30, finally, 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 she got her own plane. One of those JN1, you know, Jennies we talked about in the Amelia Earhart podcast. Lots of these were tossed onto the retail market after World War I, uh, as a matter of fact. So for $400, she was able to get this plane. And I have to say, this one was pretty decrepit. More <laughs> decrepit than most, thus the bargain price. Yeah. Still, it was hers. Um, we've all had that piece of poo car in high school. Oh, yeah. That we polished, like, with a diaper. It's a piece of crap. But yeah. it was our piece of crap. That's right. As yeah. Ferris Bueller says. That's right. <laughs> but our rust buckets couldn't kill us. You know, well, if they stalled. Yeah. Well, so, at 30, although official records at 23, see, she's even <laughs> shaved a few more years off. So, she's been 23 now for she's seven years. Here. She's like, I'm a good. 23. So she's now officially 23 in the newspaper accounts of the following. Her plane took off, and she's at 300 feet, and it decided it wasn't going up. It was going to come back down. And she nosedived to the ground. And it was three broken ribs, a broken leg, innumerable cuts and scratches and bruises and possible internal injuries. She was trying to get to an air show, and she just was a no-show. And the rage the people at the air show felt was like as if Justin Bieber had canceled. Man, how fast the public turns yeah, on you. Do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, um, she was at three months in the hospital, and one of her friends, she's like, just stop flying. Let's open a beauty parlor. We're going to do something else. And her family was never really supportive of her being, I mean, they were scared for her. Yeah, I'd be scared for her, too. I'm not going to send my child up in a pasteboard airplane (laughs) with, like, black smoke coming out in the back. No. But she's determined, although she really didn't fly again for almost a year. But back to borrowing planes, but always with the dream. Always with the dream of opening her own school. And she became very famous for her lectures. She would go. I mean, she started this a long time ago, but this is where it really took off. So on her lecture circuit, she would show up at a city, and she would travel through all of the black institutions of the town, churches, schools, meetings, associations, anywhere she could get a platform. And her basic message was, you can do it. Don't let anybody stop you. Do something with your lives. And she was a great person to say that because she did just what she was talking about. She inspired a lot of people over and over. I read that they heard her speak. And they went home fired up, not always for aviation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, you know, inspired to, like, I can do it. I can do anything. I just put my head down and focus. I just have to do it. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many hearts she in mind. She touched all over the United States. And, and it never would hear the stories because it could have been something as simple as opening a barbershop of their own. And we, why would we hear that it was because of Bessie? She played the Juneteenth in Houston, which is a celebration for the liberation 
really, of African Americans after the Civil War. They weren't really, they weren't really emancipated and, until um, June 19th, mm-hmm. after the Civil War. So June 19th was a big celebration um, called Juneteenth. So she appeared there and was basically, you know, the shining jewel of that celebration. Her lecture circuit is booming. So the momentum was building up. You know, people were thinking, you know what, we might just make this flight school a reality, you know. There was pondering, there was thinking about it. But you know what? She was actually kind of getting close to her dream. So she had a show scheduled for Jacksonville, Florida. Just another show, really. A lot of speaking engagements going on that day. Lots of meet, lots of greet, lots of you can do it. Her show was on May 1st, and a a lot of the people that heard her either had tickets already or ran out and bought tickets right after her speeches that day. She had borrowed a plane, as usual. From someone, um, and she always thought it was best to fly it ahead of time to get used to the quirks uh, in private, yeah. <laughs> not in front of people. Plus, she was going to be parachuting out, so she needed to find a place to land. So she didn't put her seatbelt on. It was a little recon. She headed up yeah. with a mechanic uh, named William Wills. He sat up front, she was behind, and, you know, okay, you take it. I'm going to check out the lay of the land here. They're at 3,000 feet. And suddenly, very suddenly, with no warning, the plane went into a tailspin. Bessie, who was not wearing her seatbelts, was thrown out of the plane at 2,000 feet and fell to her death. The seatbelt wouldn't have saved her, though. Uh, probably wouldn't have saved her. Although, Mr. Wills, still in the plane, landed. I don't know what good of a shape he was in. He was furious he was still alive. Yeah, and he was trapped in the plane, and it wasn't on fire until somebody came by with a cigarette. Has no one seen Zoolander (laughs) and the orange frappuccino scene? Has no one seen this? Has no one seen any episodes of the old show, Heart to Heart? I know not to throw a burning cigarette into a pool of gasoline, but perhaps the passersby did not. No. Some say it might have even been assassination racist work. Mm -hmm. Um, A wrench was discovered between the control levers. I'm kind of disagreeing with that because... I don't know, how how could you have even guaranteed that it would fall properly into the thing? Or it would or, stay there when you took off. And he wouldn't have made it up if the control levels wouldn't work. Yeah, they were up for a little bit. And so... Yeah, no. I'm not entirely... I think it slid under okay, at it was some just point. unfortunate. There was great shock. Great shock among the populace. Of course. I mean, they had just heard her speak. They had just heard her. And now this fiery doom, completely broken body of this famous aviatrix. 5,000 people turned out for a relatively impromptu memorial service for her in Florida. Her body lay in state, and there was an open casket. Well, I just think people needed to have some closure, I think. And she wasn't wearing a flight suit in the casket. She was wearing a dress. But Off to Chicago for the real funeral at the Pilgrim Baptist Church. 10,000 people came to pay their respects, so obviously they didn't fit in. It spilled out into the street. She was buried at Lincoln Cemetery in Chicago, where even now pilots fly overhead and drop flowers from the sky onto her grave. So it's not just her actual flying that took hold of people so thoroughly. It was her message. Mm. You can do anything. Keep trying. Never give up. That's a good message. So that was the life of Bessie Coleman, Daredevil Aviatrix. She has been requested, so a lot of people have heard of her, but I'm sure she's new to some. She died at the age of 33. That was her real age. (laughs) But her legacy did live on. Um, In 1929, her dream of a flight school was actually realized in Los Angeles with the Bessie Coleman Aero Club. 
like Beckett had said, the flyovers of her grave began in 1931 by a group of black flyers. In 1977, um, black women pilots established the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club, and she was on a stamp in 1995, a U.S. postage stamp. As to media, there's a couple of books that I recommend. There is a children's book that I really like called Fly High, the story of Bessie Coleman by Louise Borden and Mary Kay Kroger with lots of illustrations. And it doesn't rhyme, but it has a very poetic type of um, flow flow to it and lots of good illustrations. I love those illustrations. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> the, the manicure one is good. <laughs> Sitting in the window. Yeah, it's cute. So, and then also there is one called Queen Bess, Daredevil Aviator by Doris L. Rich, who also wrote a book on Amelia Earhart. Um, and it has a lot of pictures, but it's the biography. And we do like pictures. Here's the thing. A lot of the information about Bessie Coleman is very similar to that about, oh, Josephine, Josephine Baker. Baker. Because she fabricated so many things. A lot of the, a lot of the information doesn't always match up. For instance, was her real name Elizabeth Coleman or was she just named Bessie? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to find out the answer to that. We've decided she was just Bessie. Yeah, the, the reason that I liked that Queen Bess book was that it was mostly through interviews. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a more personal touch. Did you have some books that you liked? Um, actually, I didn't have any that I would um, recommend ah. to be truthful. I just spent so much time. I read one and then the next one would have such different, differenting information that I spent so much time having to backtrack and re-research that it, it embittered me. <laughs> but I mean, there's, you, yeah, I'm sure it happens to when people listen to us too, you know, well, you said, and I saw somewhere else. Da, da, da. So there is a um, BessieColeman.com which has some stories on it. Um, um, while stumbling around on the Internet, I did find, and this has very a little to do with Bessie, but it's called amightygirl.com, and it's billed as the world's largest collection of books, toys, and movies for smart, confident, and courageous girls. Hmm. You can get a Rosa Parks finger puppet, a Marie Curie bobblehead, a Rosie the River action figure, or socks, I mean, there was a lot of merchandise through this, including some books by our friend Penny Coleman hmm. was on there. And the book that you recommended for kids, Fly High, was on there as well. There is a Madame Alexander doll of Bessie, which is 10 inches and $60. But it's Madame Alexander. That's like a big name in the doll world. So it's kind of cool. We'll link you up to that. Hmm. I had never seen the site before. And they have, it's just, you know, it's a curated collection sold through them. I liked it. So that is it for Bessie Coleman, and let's leave you with a quote from William J. Powell, a black aviator, who wrote, Because of Bessie Coleman, we have overcome that which was much worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com.
gonna throw 